This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 26, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Nearly three years ago, New Hampshire instituted scholarship tax credits, which give low-income parents some help towards sending their kids to a new school. The program was embattled from the very beginning, but it recently withstood a challenge at the state Supreme Court. Charles Arlinghouse is president of the Josiah Bartlett Center in New Hampshire. We spoke earlier this month. Well, at its most basic level, people wanted to provide options for children who currently have one choice. They wanted to give them another option. You know, we all know public schools are are good in a lot of cases, and but not necessarily good for everybody. One size never fits all. People wanted to figure out a way to take people who, who can't afford another option and give them a way to afford. So rich people have school choice, poor people don't. And that's a truism. Um, but they wanted to do it in a way that didn't involve a government program. So what they wanted to happen were private scholarship organizations to come up and for them to be funded, not by the government, but by private businesses um, who, in exchange, um, receive a tax credit. All right. So what was the basic uh, design of the program as it now exists in New Hampshire? The, the design is, is that um, a business can, re- can receive a credit um, against their business profits tax for donating to a scholarship organization. That organization then makes its own decisions about um, how to provide scholarships to parents, which they can then use at any school in the state without exception. It's fairly basic. And the beauty of the plan lies in its simplicity. There aren't a lot of rules. There aren't a lot of regulations. Um, the government doesn't have to do anything. The people individually do things. The individuals choose for themselves. The scholarship organization is a private organization. It all exists on its own. This was, in 2012, was a very controversial piece of, of legislation. There had already been some charter schools in New Hampshire. I'm from Kentucky. There is zero uh, school choice for the for 99% of students there. So it, this program is aimed at moderate to low-income families. It is. There's actually a re- restriction on who the scholarships can go to. It, 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 about half the state's children are eligible and about half aren't. And, you know, that again comes from the, from the truism that at the upper income levels, people, you know, a friend of mine who was very wealthy said, look, I got school choice. He said, I, you know, I have one, one student, uh, one of my kids is in the local public school and the other one is in a $20,000 a year private school, boarding school. But most people don't have those options. And, you know, we picked based on that basis. We need to extend those options to other people. But we also wanted to do it in a way. New Hampshire has a tradition of <clears throat> smaller government, um, state involvement in education at the at the state level is minimal. There's a history of significant local control. And so they wanted to craft a way to do that um, and to allow this to happen, you know, as fundamentally um, out of government as possible. What was the role of homeschoolers in this program? And we'll get, there's a whole other chapter to this discussion. Yes. Uh, uh, but what was the role of, of homeschoolers within this legislation and how did that get put into? Well, New Hampshire over the last 20 years has seen a significant increase in the number of homeschoolers, which is, frankly, I think a proxy for some sad dissatisfaction with the system where where people thought, you know, I, I'm concerned about my, my kids' education and I'm going to do actually make a fairly significant effort. I mean, homeschooling is not a small thing. It's a big thing. Um, and that number quadrupled over about 15 years. <clears throat> the sponsors of the legislation thought to themselves, our goal is not to just enable 
um, a child to go to another school. Our goal is to enhance and improve the educational options of any child. And one of those options is homeschooling. We're obviously not going to, um, for political reasons probably, give the same scholarship amount. But what we might do is allow uh, a homeschooling family credit for supplies. Homeschoolers buy textbooks and all kinds of other supplies. And uh, where the average scholarship amount was going to be uh, something like $2,500, they looked at it and said, you know, $750 toward your educational expenses is a huge difference for a lot of people. And you said that the scholarships on average would be and have been about $2,500. That's not a static amount. It's not a static amount. And again, uh, the goal was to design some sort of flexibility. There's there's one school of thought that says you give a fixed amount to everybody. But frankly, it, it's not how tuition works at a private school. It's not how anything works. Um, um, you know, tuition at a, at a non-public school tends to be um, – not a static number. You know, people who are very poor pay very small amounts of money. People who are wealthier pay something more like full ticket price. And and the thought was that some parents need a little help to get them over the top to afford that. Some families are going to be much more uh, have a much more difficult time affording things. So let's allow that to be a larger number to make the numbers work financially in budget terms. They created an average amount, but the scholarship organization was given the flexibility to say we might do five thousand for one family and one thousand for another because it works. And uh, for given how rural uh, New Hampshire is, the options available as that other option that isn't the local public school in some areas can be uh, quite limited. Um, they can be quite limited. I, I think sometimes a little too much is made of that. That is to say that if you are a parent looking at options, um, you're not only looking at things within three blocks of your house. Um, you're probably, if you're if you're very concerned about your kid's education, willing to, if you have a car anyway, to drive 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Obviously, in the more rural areas, there are many more, the options are much more limited, um, which in the charter school arena led to the creation of things like virtual schools. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen um, with some of the non-public schools as well. There were a couple of uh, policy debates that are deeply intertwined. And one of the debates surrounded as a policy matter, to what extent will a scholarship tax credit drain funds from existing public schools? It, it, frankly, it's an argument that comes up a lot where the, the, the educational, the existing educational establishment, if you will, um, gets very excited about any dollar being diverted in any way. And I think I think too much is made of that, but it's a it's a, a conversation you have to have with policymakers and and to alleviate some of the concerns of people. There was something structured in the bill where no district is going to lose more than one quarter of one percent of their funding in a year, um, and that sounds like. That sounds ridiculous. Like, uh, how could that possibly make a difference? Well, it turns out that if you look at the averages, that's very unlikely to happen anyway. And so if you cap that loss, it's not really a concession, but it basically says to somebody, look, I'm not just saying this is not going to transform the system entirely, although it will transform individual students' lives. Um, we're going to actually put that into the law. All right. So the second argument, and this was the legal argument brought by people who wanted to essentially get the entire program thrown out from day one, which was this is money that would otherwise go to the state. And because of that, this is effectively public money. 
And because of that, it is a violation of New Hampshire's constitution against providing explicit support for religious schools in the state. I think there are two aspects of this argument that are strange um, and and, uh, and on their face just a little weird, but tells you how some people think. The one is that every dollar that you own— in, this, in that school of thought is considered the government's money because the government either can take it from you, might take it from you, and has some sort of a claim to it. And if you do something that limits the amount that might go to the government, somehow the government has a, has a reason. Money you don't give to the government is the government's money. It's just, it's just, it's crazy. And that argument failed um, for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of established law that says when the government gives you a credit or the government doesn't take money out of your pocket, that that um, there are no restrictions on that. I mean, if you think about it, every every church or synagogue in America, um, or, or at least most certainly in New Hampshire, has an exemption from property taxes. And if that's okay, then probably this is okay. Um, the the opposition to this was reduced to arguing their concern on some level is schools that have a religious component to them. So they were reduced to arguing that this program is, is okay only to the extent that the government actively discriminates against religion, that you can go to any school except a religious school. And so somehow religious neutrality, as we envisioned by the First Amendment, is transformed into religious hostility. And uh, I think at the end of the day, the Supreme Court in New Hampshire found that a bridge too far. You said the Supreme Court. Of course, this was a lawsuit that was brought by uh, a public school advocate in New Hampshire. And it was not resolved on the merits. It was thrown out because these people weren't harmed by this uh, particular piece of legislation. That was the final resolution. But with respect to where the program is now and where it is expected to be in a few years, can you just sort of unpack that a little bit? Because there was a lawsuit, because the because the program was subject to, to the sort of legal wrangling, I think that it's been in something of a holding pattern. Does the program exist? It, certainly it does. But there were a lot of potential donors and a lot of potential students who were taking a taking a backseat and waiting to see. You don't want to enter a program that is on um, that is on life support. And so until the lawsuit was resolved, that was always going to be a problem. Now that it, now that it's been resolved, a couple things have happened. One is that the program exists. And and politically, it's not going to change. You know, there's no there's no stomach. There's something of a stalemate in the legislature and the governor. Um, so people know it's going to exist. So some certainty exists, and I think that's going to allow a significant fundraising effort. Um, the second part is I think it's important to say about the lawsuit that um, the Supreme Court did not act. And they did not rule on the constitutionality. But because it was in front of them, they could have ruled on the constitutionality. And if this were an egregious abridgment of the rights of the people, I have confidence that the Supreme Court would have found a way to rule that it is an egregious abridgment of the rights. And I think that that, what that means is a lot of them looked at it and said, you know what, this is fine. Let's not rule on that. Let's rule on something else. As a matter of policy, where is this program headed? Um, I think where it's headed is that we're going we're gonna to watch it. More students are going to be involved in it. More students are, are going to have a choice in their school system. And I think that um, everybody in the state and probably in other states, frankly, um, are going to look at it and say, all right, how's this working? Is this making a difference in the lives of children? What's the value proposition for uh, lawmakers in other states that might be considering something like this for 
moderate to low income uh, parents to sort of give them a little boost for trying to seek out other opportunities. I think the I think the value proposition, the thing the thing other states will look at it and they'll say, is this program structured in a way that that um, insulates it to some degree from legislative mischief? Yes, in fact, very much so. Is this a program that that uh, appears to pass constitutional musters that a lot of states have, and it does appear to be so. And so this is a way that appears to work to provide access to educational options for children. The chief plaintiff in this lawsuit uh, said that he was looking forward to other avenues to take to get this program thrown out. I think the people who started the lawsuit would like to file another lawsuit. But let's be honest, everyone who loses any lawsuit wants to file another lawsuit. But for now, this is a settled matter. I wouldn't be surprised if in four, five, six, seven years, uh, somebody finds a way to sue again. But at this point, I think any legal observer in the state would tell you that um, the program is going to continue. And it may not expand a lot. It may expand a little. Who knows? But it's not going to get thrown out. Charles Arlinghouse is president of the Josiah Bartlett Center in New Hampshire. You could learn more about how states can move toward educational freedom at our website, cato.org.